household salvation. When you've got a Spurgeon sermon with a title like that, you might put yourself into the position of those who hear on an airliner the words brace, brace, imagining that you're going to launch into some hefty polemic against infant sprinkling. But that's far from being the emphasis of this sermon that was preached on the 5th of November, a Lord's Day morning in 1871 by Spurgeon at the Tabernacle in Newington. The text on that occasion was Acts 16, 32 to 34. And they spoke to him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straight away. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Now, if you read that text and you know how convinced a Baptist Spurgeon is, you won't be surprised that he does make some points along the way that will uh, be emphatic in defence of his own convictions. But the primary intent of this sermon is to allure and encourage his hearers to long for family religion. So we'll uh, consider both of those things as we go. But uh, I think Spurgeon, together with uh, a a Reformed Baptist like myself, a particular Baptist, would say, uh, often when we hear the language, uh, let's, let's not talk about the household baptisms, they're inconclusive, let's not uh, discuss those things, I, I would, would be with Spurgeon. I'd say, no, let, let's talk about them. We have no embarrassment about them. In fact, we rather think that they uh, support our cause than otherwise. And uh, Spurgeon here then preaches a, a fundamentally positive sermon about these household baptisms. So we're going to follow along with this as our featured sermon for this week. In that sense, it's also fairly representative of Spurgeon's output. Uh, From 1018 to 1024, we're reading this 1019 is our featured sermon, as I just mentioned. And you can find out more on X at Reading Spurgeon or at mediagratii.org slash podcasts. Uh, You can find a book that we've Uh, put together with the sermons from the new Park Street pulpit uh, on amazon.co.uk or amazon.com. Same title, From the Heart of Spurgeon. And we hope that you will uh, appreciate some of these outputs. Let's uh, turn to our sermon then for this week. It sometimes happens, says Spurgeon, that a good man has to go alone to heaven. God's election has separated him from the midst of an ungodly family and, notwithstanding his example and his prayers and his admonitions, they still remain unconverted. And he himself, a solitary one, a speckled bird amongst them, has to pursue his lonely flight to the skies. Far oftener, however, it happens that the God who is the God of Abraham becomes the God of Sarah and then of Isaac and then of Jacob, and though grace does not run in the blood, and regeneration is not of blood nor of birth, yet doth it very frequently, I was about to say almost always, happen that God, by means of one of a household, draws the rest to himself. That's a really sweet and encouraging opening statement, and it gives us hope for for our labours and our prayers amongst those to whom we are uh, close by ties of blood. We rejoice, says Spurgeon, to think of whole families enclosed within the lines of electing grace and entire households redeemed by blood, devoting themselves to the service of the God of love. 
I think actually the first corrective in this sermon is probably to uh, to Baptists who uh, seem to be quite dismissive of the influence and opportunity and desire that we should have for the salvation of those who are around us. Let Abraham's prayer be for Ishmael, he says. Let Hannah pray for Samuel. Let David plead for Solomon. Let Andrew find first his brother Simon and Eunice train her Timothy. They will be nonetheless large or prevalent in their pleadings for others because they were mindful of those allied to them by ties of blood. Let's not forget then the wonderful privilege of belonging to a a family in which there are true Christians, or if we are Christians in a family, the opportunities that we have and the desire that we should have for the blessing of all around us. Spurgeon runs through five points in this sermon. Uh, It's a fairly well-ordered sermon. Uh, again, if you, you look at the way it holds together, it's quite coherent. It's, it's uh, well proportioned in, in the way that he, he manages the material. A whole household hearing the word, a whole household believing it, a whole household baptized, a whole household working for God and a whole household rejoicing. You can't really miss some of the uh, polemic edge to it. But nevertheless, uh, it's primarily, I think, a positive sermon. So observe first then in the passage before us, a whole household hearing the word. Spurgeon says we don't know when uh, this father first heard it, this Philippian jailer, uh, but he asked in his alarm when the earthquake struck, what must I do to be saved? And there was a personal answer that he received. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your house. And then he says it seems that the whole family gathered around their parent and Paul and Silas spoke to them more. They preached the word of God to them. That's really important. Notice how Spurgeon's uh, not just uh, imposing a system, but rather preaching the text. They spoke to him the word of God and to all that were in his house. Would to God, he says, that all preachers would keep to the word of God and above all things would exalt the incarnate word of God. This were infinitely better than to delude men's minds with these germs of thought, these strikingly new ideas, metaphysical subtleties and speculations and theories and discoveries of science, falsely so-called, which are now nowadays so fashionable. If all ministers would preach the word, the revealed mind and will of God, then hearers would in larger numbers become converts, for God will bless his own word, but he will not bless anything else. And he says, There are sermons I've heard which God Almighty himself could not bless to the conversion of anybody, because they simply weren't true. They were not such as were calculated to honour God. And so it's the word of God that must be preached, and then the place and the hour and the dress of the preacher will not matter. So Paul has preached the word of God and he's preached it to this man and he's preaching it too to his family. Spurgeon says, if I could not be the instrument of converting a soul by preaching the gospel myself, I would habitually addict myself to the bringing of strangers to listen to those whom God has owned to the conversion of souls. Why our congregations need never be thin. I speak not now for myself, for I have no need. But in no place where the gospel is preached need there be a thin audience if those who already appreciate the gospel would feel it to be a Christian duty to bring others to hear it. This then is is what's taking place, the preaching of the word. You've got this father, first of all, who uh, is bringing his family under the sound of the gospel that he himself has just received. 
And he goes on, he says, not just the fathers then, but the mothers must hear the word. Many of them do, but he says, I know cases and I wish to speak to what's practical when a man comes to hear the word himself, but his wife is detained at home with the children. She's not converted and perhaps she doesn't bother. Perhaps she's a Christian woman and she wishes she could go, but she must look after the children. And he says, then it's the duty of every such father, if there's no servant to attend to the children, and it's worth bearing in mind Spurgeon's context where there would have been more servants in the home. And uh, that may be the context that you're in as you listen to this, depending on where in the world that you're living. But his, his point is that then a father must take turns with his wife and let her have her fair share of opportunity for hearing the gospel. And then what about the children? Don't we desire to see them converted as children? There's no need that they should wait till they're grown up and have run into sin as their fathers did that they may afterwards be brought back. It would be infinitely better if they were preserved from such wanderings and early brought into the fold of Jesus. So let the little ones be brought to hear the gospel. They can hear it in the Sunday school and there are special services adapted to them. But, he says, and this is so important, I believe, for my part, I like also so to preach that boys and girls shall be interested, and I shall feel that I am very faulty in my style if children cannot understand much that I teach in the congregation. Bring all who have reached years of understanding with you. Allow none to be at home except for good reasons. Now, that says something to us as churches. Do we shunt our children out of the services of the church, take them away from the preaching of the gospel. And if we're preachers ourselves, then do we actually preach in such a way that the children will be interested? Do we address them directly? Do we speak to them plainly? Spurgeon says, if nothing else comes from children's attending our worship, the holy habit of going up to God's house will be a perpetual heritage to them. And who knows, but while they are yet young, their hearing the word shall be the means of their salvation. Then he says there are servants. Uh, He talks about those who are functionally dependent on the head of a home. And again, you may not have such, uh, but uh, you might want to apply this to uh, a little more broadly. Maybe you're thinking if there's a a lodger in the house, uh, maybe there's a a family member who's a, a little bit outside the immediate family. But he says, what about them? What about these others who are under your influence and under your care? Are you giving them opportunities of hearing the gospel? Perhaps you say, well, if my wife and I are going to go, we're going to get maybe a grandparent to come and and look after the kids. Well, what about getting your grandparents to come to to church? Your, Your parents, your children's grandparents. You cannot pray to God to save your household and be honest, says Spurgeon, unless you give the whole household an opportunity of being saved. And God's way of saving souls, we repeat it, is by the preaching and hearing of the word. His point then, under this first heading, a whole household hearing the word, is that we must take pains to ensure that we and all those over whom we have some proper responsibility and influence are under the sound of the gospel, and that repeatedly and perpetually. I was in a situation just recently in an environment where people have been wonderfully converted and uh, churches are being established according to a biblical pattern. uh, And yet very few of these believers, most of them younger, have got any kind of example of of godly parenting to which they can look up. Uh, And one of the questions they were discussing was, can we really uh, oblige anybody to come to church? 
Uh, and it's that whole principle and expectation. While your children are under your care, you have this privilege as well as a duty of bringing the word of God to bear upon them, ensuring that they sit under the sound of the gospel. And that really begins in the earliest years when they're when they're babes in arms, when they're uh, infants. Uh, maybe just toddling around, that's when that training and expectation begins, that because you love their souls, you will bring them under the sound of the gospel, so that as they understand, as they, they get accustomed to hearing, they are hearing above all other things the word of the living God. That brings us to the second point, this whole household believing. And that's exactly, says Spurgeon, what we are taught in the 34th verse, that he believed in God with all his house. All, all, all were powerfully affected, says Spurgeon, savingly affected by the gospel which Paul preached to them. He says there were probably new hearers, and if they were new hearers, they were also unlikely hearers. This has shaken them as they've heard it. It's come to them unexpectedly because uh, their their husband, their father, uh, their master is a is a Roman jailer of all things. So this is this is a wonderful thing when the gospel hits them. It hits them hard. It hits them soon. Uh, it hits them suddenly. It comes with a freshness. There's the soul-piercing music of a saviour's dying cries that penetrates to their souls. And it's unlikely that they would have done. As Spurgeon says, be encouraged that those who've just heard it uh, were uh, shouldn't have thought you that they would hear it. So who are you that you should say it's of no use to invite such and such a man to hear for he would never be converted? The more improbable it seems to be in your judgment, perhaps the more likely it is that God will look upon him with an eye of love. And says Spurgeon that they were unlikely but immediately converted. It doesn't take a month to convert a soul to God. Glory be to the Lord. If he wills to do it, he can convert everyone here this morning in a moment. Once hearing the gospel may be sufficient to make a man a Christian. That's wonderful because it's not it's not the apostles' eloquence that does it. It's the divine power that accomplishes it. And here they are, all believing. Again, this is why a Baptist is is utterly unembarrassed by the household baptisms because this is the model that we see there. It's said that they all believed. Spurgeon says, well, I suspect we could also say then that they all prayed and many other good things, but it's faith that is at the root of everything. Faith is an instantaneous act at its beginning and remains as an abiding grace. Its first act by the power of God puts a man into the present possession of immediate salvation. But do we preach as if we believe this as a matter of fact? And again, this is a challenge to us as preachers. Do we preach for for young and for old and for rich and for poor, for the likely and the unlikely, humanly speaking, in the anticipation that they might each and all be immediately converted and it would bring forth rich fruits in their life to come? And then notice particularly, says Spurgeon, that though they were suddenly converted, they were very hearty converts. Uh, He's about to tell us that they proved immediately how thoroughly converted they were by their acts of service. They were renewed from head to foot. It's delightful, says Spurgeon, to meet your hearty Christians who, when he's given his heart to Jesus, means it and devotes his whole body, soul and spirit to the good Lord who had brought him with his blood. 
Some of you, he says, have only got a little finger conversion, just enough to wear the ring of profession and look respectable. But oh, to have hand and foot and lungs and heart and voice and soul all saturated with the Spirit's influence and consecrated to the cause of God. And then he comes back, they all believed. That's his main point. What a sweet picture to look upon. The Father is a believer in Jesus, but he has not to kneel down and pray, Lord, save my dear wife for see, and rejoice as you see it. She is a believer too. And then there's the elder son and the daughters. We don't know and we can't guess how many there might be, but they're all rejoicing in their father's God. And then he does start to guess. There are the servants, the old nurse who brought up the little ones and the little maid and the warders who have to look after the prisoners. And they're all of them ready to sing the psalm of praise. Oh, brothers, he says, if some of us should ever see all our children and our servants saved, we would cry like Simeon of old, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. Isn't this the the, the picture of what we desire in our own households, that we would see husband, wife, sons, daughters, others under our influence coming together to cry out in faith to the God of their salvation? Now, what is the consequence? Spurgeon says, in the third place, you have a whole household baptised. In almost every case in Scripture where you read of a household baptism, says Spurgeon, you are distinctly informed that they were also a believing household. It's not so in the case of Lydia, but then there are remarkable circumstances about her case which render that information needless. Here we've got a very clear statement. They were all believers and so all baptised first the jailer, and then all his. What a glorious baptism amid the glare of the torches that night. Perhaps in the prison bath, he surmises, or in the impluvium which was in the centre of most of those houses, or perhaps the very stream that watered Philippi ran by the prison wall and was used for the occasion. It doesn't matter, but down they went into the water one after another, mother, children and servants, Paul and Silas, delighting to aid them in declaring themselves to be on the Lord's side. Spurgeon says it was done immediately. Now, he he would be very adamant about this. Again, there are some differences of opinion, even amongst the Baptists. But in his opinion, uh, no one shrank from baptism for fear of water that might damage his health or cause inconvenience, but they obeyed. And so no minister has any right to refuse to baptise any person who professes faith in Jesus Christ unless there be some glaring fact to cast doubt upon the candidate's sincerity. I, for one, would never ask from any person weeks and months of delay in which the man should prove to me that he was a believer, but I would follow the example of the apostle. Now again, you might say some of that is circumstantial, but Spurgeon is persuaded. The gospel of Christ was preached, the people were converted, they were baptised, and all perhaps in the space of an hour. Why is it then that so many wait so long? Where is the precept or example to warrant your hesitation? Duties delayed, says Spurgeon, are sins. Now there's an interesting comment here. He says, well, why do you say so much about baptism? Somebody might challenge him. Much about baptism, says Spurgeon, never was a remark more ungenerous if it's made against me. I might far more justly be censured for saying so little about it. Much about baptism? I call you all to witness that, unless it comes across my path in the scriptures, I never go away from the text to drag it in. I am no partisan. I never made baptism my main preaching, and God forbid I should. 
but I will not be hindered from preaching the whole truth, and I dare say no less than I am now saying. The Holy Ghost has recorded the baptism here. Will you think little of what he chooses to record? Paul and Silas, an apostle and his companion, they dared not neglect the audience. How dare you despise it? And here's his point then. It was dead of night. It was a prison. It might have been put off. It surely might have been then. It was not a reputable place to dispense baptism. But Spurgeon's point is this. If you have come to the cross and all your hope is placed there, then come and declare that you are Christ's. And what we long to see is whole families baptised. I know in the church to which I belong, that's long been a prayer of ours and it reminds me that we need to make it more prominent once again that we would see whole families in our neighbourhood saved from their sins and coming into the kingdom of God together. That brings us to our fourth heading. Remember, we've got a whole family um, whole family hearing, then a whole family believing, a whole family being baptised, and now a whole household at work for God. The whole household at work for God. It's a great mercy when you have a family saved and baptised if the whole household sets to work to serve the Lord, for there's something for all to do. Is there then a lazy church member here? Friend, you miss a great blessing. Uh, is there a mother here whose husband is diligent in serving God, but she neglects to lead her children in the way of truth? Ah, dear woman, you're losing what would be a great comfort to your own soul. We cease to grow when we cease either to labour or to suffer for the Lord, says Spurgeon. So you've got a whole household now that is astir. The whole household has heard the good news. The whole household has believed upon that news. The whole household has been baptised upon believing in Jesus Christ. And they all now do something. The father calls for a light. The servants bring the torches. The prisoners are taken and their stripes are washed. Then there's food that is given to them. Everything in the household is now sanctified to the service of God and to supply the needs of the ministers of Jesus Christ. And this then should be the spirit of the baptised man or woman, boy or girl. What can I now do for Jesus Christ? And how we need to have that in our congregations today. Spurgeon says bringing forth fruit unto God is unto ourselves a most pleasant and profitable operation. And even our children, when saved, can do something for the master. The little hand that drops its halfpence into the offering box out of love to Jesus is accepted of the Lord. The young child trying to tell its brother or sister of the dear Saviour who has loved it is a true missionary of the cross. Are we, are we thinking like this in our families in our churches, that we are training a generation of workers in the kingdom of God. And that brings Spurgeon to his fifth sight and his fifth point, which is a family all rejoicing, for the man rejoiced in God with all his household. According to the run of the text, the object of their joy was that they had believed. Believing obtains the pardon of all sin and brings Christ's righteousness into our possession. It declares us to be the sons of God. It gives us heirship with Christ. It secures his blessing here and glory to come. Who would not rejoice at this? But then their joy comes too from being baptised. We, we read of the Ethiopian after he was baptised that he went on his way rejoicing. So God often gives a clearing of the skies to those who are obedient to his command. 
I have known persons habitually the subject of doubts and fears who have suddenly leapt into joy and strength when they have done as their Lord commanded them. Not for keeping, but in keeping his commandments, there is great reward. So perhaps if you're if you're doubting and fearing, if you're if you're stumbling and wary, Spurgeon says, look, if you're believing in Christ, do your duty, be baptized, and in that God himself may give you a blessing of confirmation and assurance. Then he says, they rejoiced no doubt because they had an opportunity of serving the church in waiting upon the apostle. So he's really, in one sense, reviewing those earlier points they felt glad to think that Paul was at their table. They'll do everything that they can to, to now bless him. So Christian people are never so happy as when they're busy for Jesus. When you do most for Christ, you shall feel most of his love in your hearts. And many of us would testify that that's true, that the, the, the more we give an opportunity to do, the more energy and joy we have. Why, says Spurgeon, it makes my heart tingle with joy when I feel that I can honour my God. Well, if the Lord set before you a door of usefulness, why don't you go through it even today? And says Spurgeon, their joy was permanent and continued. There would not be any quarrelling in that house now, no disobedient children, no short-tempered father, no fretful mother, no cruel brother, no exacting sister, no purloining servants or eye servers, no warders who would exceed their duty or be capable of receiving bribes from the prisoners. The whole house would become a holy house and a happy house henceforth. His point is not that there'd never be any more sin in their hearts, in their hands, in their home, but that they would be a transformed household. Everybody is is now different to what they were before because Christ is in their hearts. Uh, they've the, the man may have been a rough soldier, but but now he's a he's become a true follower of Jesus Christ. Perhaps he set a bad example up to this point, but now he's seen and known as a true uh, servant of the Most High. Ah, here they are rejoicing, and their joy continues because their their life of service continues. And here are, are two great ones of the church who'd been scourged and put in prison. And now the humble members cannot expect to fare better. Yes, they may be persecuted in Philippi, but if, they, if they're able to go on serving God, they're able to go on rejoicing. They're rejoicing as a family because they are truly renewed as a family. And that brings Spurgeon to a couple of closing points. First of all, that that household is now in glory. All there, the jailer, his spouse, his children, his servants... He that believes and is baptised shall be saved. That must be true of them. And now, he says, some of you know what that's like. Your, your, your broken household's here, but you know you'll be gathered around the throne. Others of you, he says, you'll be broken around the throne. And if anything could mar your joy, it would be the thought that someone is missing. God grant then that it may never be so. So he's turning this now to practical use to urge us to to see by our prayers and our words that no child of our loins might die an heir of wrath, none who've slept in our bosoms might be banished from Jehovah's presence. By the bliss of a united family, he says, I beseech you, seek after it that you may have that united family in heaven. 
This then is the last question. Will my family be there? Will yours? Turn it over in your minds, my brothers and sisters, and if you can give the happy answer and say, yes, by the blessing of God, I believe we shall all be there, then I will ask you to serve God very much, for you owe him very much. You are deep debtors to the mercy of God, you parents who have godly children, and you ought to do twice as much, nay, seven times as much for Jesus as any other Christians. But if you have to give a painful answer, let this be a day of prayer. And I would say to you, could not you fathers who love the Lord even call your children together this afternoon and tell them what I have been talking about? Well, could we not do that? Could we not at some point today go to our wives or our husbands, our sons or our daughters, others who are under our influence or in some way dependent upon us and carry this message of God's salvation to those who still need it. There's a lovely little touch just at the end of this sermon, for Spurgeon has his uh, orphan boys just around the pulpit, and you can almost hear him leaning over. This is the last paragraph in the recorded sermon, and with this we close with a sense of this man's uh, gospel heart and love. Uh, and in, in closing, let me just encourage you to, to come back again and join us next week when we read Sermon 1027 on the joy of the Lord, the strength of his people. Uh, that will be Sermons 1025 to 1031. We're breaking into the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 18. But here's that closing sermon, and may that carry us then into this coming week. You dear boys just below me, who are a few out of my large family at the orphanage, some of you have fathers in heaven. I hope you will follow them in the right way. The Church of God tries to take care of you because you are orphans, and God has promised to be the father of the fatherless. Oh dear boys, give him your hearts. Some of you have godly mothers, I know them, and I know that they pray for you. May their prayers be heard for you. I hope you will trust the Saviour and grow up to serve him. May it not be long before you profess your faith in baptism, and may we all of us meet in glory above, everyone without exception. The Lord grant it, for Christ's sake. Amen. May that be the heart that we have for all those to whom we can so speak. Amen.